Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode two of the podcast, the topic is the future of beverages. Our guest is Ronan McGovern, MIT alum with a PhD in mechanical engineering and currently the CEO at Sandy Mount Technologies and Point Five Brewing, an MIT spin-out he founded that serves brewers. So here I am with Ronan McGovern, who is an MIT alum and an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur at that. And we are here to talk about food tech, specifically on the future of beverages. Ronan, how are you today? Doing well. I just wish it would stop raining here, Trond. <laughs> Look, um, I was going to get to this, but aren't you from Dublin? <laughs> yeah, right. That's like, I thought I'd get some benefit from moving away, but uh, it doesn't seem that way this week. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm Norwegian myself. I have the same, uh, the same issue. I, I, I love good weather, uh, but I can't culturally claim that I always have. Um, tell me... Um, so you have a PhD in mecha mechanical engineering from MIT. So at some point you got yourself over here. How did that happen? Yeah, I, um, I actually got a Fulbright scholarship. Um, there was this program, which has since been discontinued to support full PhDs via the Fulbright program. So Fulbright is normally an exchange program that only lasts six months or a year. And it's bilateral. So either US people can go to other countries or other countries like Ireland, Pakistan, Nepal, anywhere can come here. So anyway, there was this PhD program that was supported. I got a fellowship and that made it pretty attractive for any university to accept me because Fulbright was funding a lot. And so I ended up applying to a few universities and one of them that I got into was MIT. So that's how I got yeah, here. Yeah, not at all to do with you being an exciting guy, which we'll get into. Uh, so that's suitably modest. I like that. Over well, European. <laughs> I think it was the Irish accent. <laughs> Probably. You know, let's just jump straight into the beverage space. It's an area that you are passionate about. Uh, everybody loves uh, the space, uh, you know, and uses uh, beverages for, for all kinds of things and mo more and more um, different flavors and, and everything. What's going on in this space, uh, Ronan? I don't fully understand that. Well, neither do I, Trond. I, um, I'm learning every day, but I... I suppose I can I can say a few things. One is um, people are obviously drinking a lot less sugar. And I'd say to some degree, people are drinking less alcohol as well. Right. Um, so whereas a lot of, if you look at the total amount of liquid that people drink on a daily basis, a lot of that, say 20 years ago, especially in the US, would have been soda. Um, and that's really changed now. So there's this whole chunk of the market. And in fact, juice consumption has gone down as well, which is another kind of high sugar drink. And so that's all being replaced by, you know, this new phase of beverages, which a lot of it, uh, a lot of it is, you know, maybe coffee, cold brew, um, sparkling water, seltzer, you know, is something people are drinking a lot of and hopefully non-alcoholic beer trend. That's uh, that's my hope. Of course, we'll get to that in a second. You're the CEO and founder of a uh, of a technology company that serves brewers uh, with all kinds of technology that that um, has an, an, a very interesting feature that yeah, it's a very interesting company you've got. But I let, let's stop just for a second on this idea of this beverage sector first, because it claim there are lots of claims in the industry that, you know, health and wellness concerns are now becoming more important, uh, which I guess isn't a surprise. But also there is this 
what the industry is increment more incremental innovators i would say call line extensions uh can you comment on these things before we get into the kind of the meat of like the more revolutionary changes? What, what, what are these line extensions and why are, why is the industry consistently putting out new flavors and, and how, why is that even working? Oh, I don't know if it's working. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll again, just give you a few of my comments, but, uh, I suppose if you're changing flavors, it's hard from a business standpoint because you keep on having to create new packaging and new advertising. And it's kind of hard to make money if you keep on having to change what you're doing because you don't get to keep stamping it out and reduce the cost and eventually make a profit. So I think that's been a challenge actually for the industry. But to some extent, it's what consumers maybe want, people would would say. It's kind of the era of choice. People want more options. I don't necessarily agree with that myself, but I think people would say that. Um, you know, a little anecdote. Um, I suppose maybe I've heard this from craft brewers. So if you look at a craft brewer, um, a lot of craft brewers will sell most of their volume on a single on a single skew or a single type of product. So, for example, Harpoon Brewery here in in uh, Boston, pretty much well, a very big chunk of their sale would be their Harpoon IPA. Okay, you've probably had a Harpoon IPA, Trond, have you? I, I have. Yes. Nice. I like it. It's a very good one. Um, so they'll make, you know, most of, most of their money and most of their sales on that. And, and that's not dissimilar to other craft brewers. And so the other kind of brands that keep coming out that you're talking about, to some extent, that's a marketing budget because you're trying to keep engagement with the audience. And so that's what I've heard a few craft brewers say about those, uh, you know, line extensions, as you've called them, Trond. Right. Well, you know, we're going to get to what you're doing in a moment, but I just wanted to build it up a little bit. And there are just so many perplexing things for me in this industry. I mean, for instance, this whole term functional plus drinks. Have you heard this? <laughs> it rings a bell. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, that, I don't even understand. But I mean, I guess from your perspective, the function of a drink is the liquid. I, I, I mean, is that is that pretty much what it is. The function of a drink is it's liquid. So the function plus is flavor. I, I'm just trying to get the terminology right before we really, I, I can even understand, you know, what's going on in the industry. Um, yeah, I'd say I'm weak on terminology, Trond, but it's an interesting question. What is a beverage? I mean, maybe just to go to a big example, like Coca-Cola, one of the most yes. successful beverages ever. Um, yeah. I mean, there you have a product that um, you know, I suppose provides hydration. It provides energy, um, calories. Um, it also has caffeine in it. So it's kind of waking you up, which also is, you know, somewhat addictive, I guess, maybe good from a product standpoint, if you're cynical about it. Um, and then it kind of has a brand. So it makes you feel like maybe the people who are in the Coca-Cola advertisements. Um, so I guess there's a lot to unpack when you talk about a beverage. Well, exactly. I, I think that's that's the issue, right? Uh, I, and and I probably was trying to oversimplify it because th there clearly is something here. I mean, I I discovered this the first time, not just about beverages, but the, the entire food space, of course, and and food tech. I remember us putting on a uh, oh, no two, I think, different food tech events at MIT uh, a few years back, and they were just immensely oversubscribed there's something why are people so intrigued when it comes to innovations or new takes on on this space because you surely must have experienced some of this kind of effervescence around 
your company as well. People get very fascinated when they see what you've actually done. Well, is it maybe just that people can actually try it themselves partly? So it's a product that's, you know, very close to the consumer and their daily lives, I guess. Maybe it's that, is it? I Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I definitely think it's an exciting space. Uh, I just think that it is very hard to track it and really understand uh, what the consumer shifts are all about. Because, you know, in the marketing lingo, you try to understand kind of generational demands, new things sort of coming in. But, but some of these changes, right, they can cause pretty profound, uh, uh, you know, uh, product portfolio changes in the industry. So let, let's then go to your um, function in this market. So the whole idea of a non-alcoholic beverage, wh when did this space emerge? Do you, do you know? To some extent, it's been around a long time, Trond. If you look at, say, the German market, that's a market where there's, well, I won't say always, but certainly always for the length of my life, um, mm -hmm. which goes back to 1989, there would have been non-alcoholic beer and it would have been consumed, um, you know, in a single digit percentage of the market, which is pretty significant. So I don't have the number, but, you know, it could be around five, uh, maybe even a little bit higher percent of the German market. Would, that's, the beer that's, market. A, that's a high amount it's because you know high, yeah. i mean in the u.s i guess the prohibition era was the first time when there's was even an incentive to try to produce something but i, I to my knowledge there wasn't really a, a very high success for any any non-alcoholic products at that time um maybe else the you know anheuser-busch in the 1990s came out with something i think they had bought this uh, brewer odell's um odell's yeah odell's yeah sorry sorry odell the taste will win you over. You're right. I don't right, know how popular right. that thing was, but uh, but that's a while back. It is. And, and then fast forward to now, you're seeing, um, you're seeing big things happening with alcohol, non-alcoholic beer. You, you think it's becoming a, a true force, right? Well, I think what surprised me a lot, Trond, was to to learn that in Ireland and see myself because I spend quite a bit of time there that non-alcoholic take took off. I mean, you kind of just have to laugh at that when you think of Irish people drinking non-alcoholic beer. But the fact is that now I think it's also in the single digit percentages of the beer market in Ireland. People are drinking, you know, products like Heineken and Carlsberg Zero Zero. And um, so that's, uh, that's interesting because I think that's a little bit ahead of the US because it you is. Know, I don't know, in the US, it used to be the market for non-alcoholic drinks for sort of retired cops, uh, suburban dads, and uh, obviously reformed alcoholics and others who had very good reason to, to do so. But now, arguably, it's different. I, th I was looking this up and according to Nielsen, and I think this was uh, beginning of this year, yeah. half a percent of category dollars uh, in January, you know, uh, went into the category and but, but however that makes the market worth about seven billion dollars is, is that enough to be excited about or is it more the trends and what you're seeing from Europe and other places that makes you excited uh, for instance about the US market of, uh, of this kind yeah I mean all it takes for me to get excited is if I see there's single digit growth or single digit of the beer market is non-alcoholic in a place like Ireland it seems very reasonable to me that the U.S. is uh, certainly in big cities, coastal cities. I think that the percentage will rise to at least that amount. And that if you think about that, which is, by the way, you're right, that's not where the U.S. market is yet. But I think it's on that trajectory. I think that's that makes it a pretty big that makes it a pretty big market then. 
Have you been to any bars that only uh, sell non-alcoholic beer? I um, know that there's a bar in Brooklyn, Getaway, that opened in April that offers mocktails only. Um, and there seems to be a, a pop-up venue in Manhattan that right. is uh, advertising that they're rewriting nightlife beyond alcohol. But, you know, it seems to me that it is still relatively fringe, but it is, if it is like you're saying, it's growing. And yeah. let's get to that in a second. You t- tell me a little bit more about wh- what your company does, you know, in this space, what the innovation is. And um, I think you and I have had a discussion about this. You, you also think that the taste of both non-alcoholic beer and a, and a beer that you um, well, and you can explain your technology yourself, but you take the water out of beer. Uh, I'm just very fascinated by the whole concept. T- tell me how this, what, how do you make that happen? Yeah, so Point Five is the brand um, that I've started, Point Five Brewing. And Point Five is about creating a non-alcoholic beer that tastes just like beer. And the way that's done is using uh, a membrane or filtration technology that's able to very precisely remove the alcohol from a traditionally fermented beer. So uh, we're really going a traditional route. Like we're making 0.5 beer exactly like beer is traditionally made. Um, it's actually brewed as a pilsner. Um, the difference is just in, uh, in the step after the fermentation, we selectively remove that alcohol using um, you know, this, this pretty special technology that we've developed. And what that lets us do is get that very close match to that original beer. So um, that's, that's kind of what it's all about. And, you know, a, a lot of non-alcoholic beers, um, the alternate way of making it is to kind of radically change the beer by, say, evaporating the water, which evaporates a lot of the flavor, or to completely change the fermentation process. So you just stop fermentation early um, and don't make the alcohol. But really, in those two cases, it's quite hard to get back um, or to match the original taste. And I think that's where, you know, 0.5 stands out. So are you are unique with this approach? We are, Trant, yes. Yes. How did you get started on this? And, and what was the path from, uh, I'm assuming, some of your doctoral work that led into this? Can you tell me what you did, uh, you know, on the technology side that convinced you that you had a membrane that could, could do this job? Yeah, sure. Um, so point five trend is a, is a more recent venture. It's something that just has been started within the last six months. And it came off the platform of Sandy Mount technologies, which is, um, a membrane technology company I started. So let, let me pull you right back to when I left MIT and started Sandy Mount which is now um, almost uh, five, six years ago. Um, As you said, I was working on desalination at MIT. I was working on membranes, which is the same category of technology that we use today at Sandy Mountain at 0.5. And um, long story short, I found an application where I could use filtration technology to make beer concentrates, um, thereby saving money on transport for brewers. and that's, that's been the core business at Sandy Mount. And I can, I can tell you a bit more about that. But in essence, um, along the way, while working with membranes, um, the team at Sandy Mount discovered a way to remove alcohol. And that kind of led to the birth of 0.5.
It's, it's fascinating because you're basically removing what I would have thought were essential elements. I mean, in Sandy Mount, I remember showing, showing off your company, I guess, to, to industry a few years back, right? And uh, I don't know, they didn't really believe it, right? You could remove the water and, and have the same taste after when, when you put the water back in. Uh, th- that's also striking but now you're also removing the alcohol it sort of begs the question what what were you drinking before (laughs) yeah yeah so i mean i'll get sciencey a little bit here for a second trond if you look at beer there's water which is the smallest molecule inside beer the next biggest one is alcohol and then the next biggest ones are basically the aromas and then if you go above the aromas you get to uh, proteins and sugars but, but the key is the smallest is water, the second smallest is alcohol. So if you have a filter or a sieve of a certain size that's just bigger than water, which is what we do at Sandy Mount, you can just let the water through. And then if you have a sieve that's slightly bigger again, that's just bigger than alcohol, you can let the alcohol and the water through and you can keep the aromas. And I guess, you know, science and engineering is at a point now where we can do that very selectively. Um, and that's why, you know, the quality is so good. Let's get to this in a second, but I'm fascinated by membrane technology because the precision level that you talk about now just makes uh, so many opportunities. Uh, do, do you have ideas for, for even further use cases of this kind of membrane? I mean, what are some of the other use cases that the technology you developed could conceivably be used for? Have you tried to filtrate other things? Yeah, so the category where the sandy mount technology does well is with very small molecules that have no charge like alcohol or like the aromas i'm talking about in beer those molecules unlike say salt that's in seawater they're not ionic or they're not charged which actually makes it harder to to um, select them because you can't use charge as a way to you know select between the compounds so our technology is very good at, at those small uncharged molecules so the beverage sector is a very good area um, you know, alcoholic beverages in particular, because they have a lot of these small, subtle flavors uh, that come from fermentation. Um, you know, cold brew coffee, there's some of the aromatics in that. Um, there are other applications, for example, distilling alcohol um, without using heat for the purpose of making biofuels. Um, there are all, there's also a project that I'm working on around wastewater treatment where there are some, you know, alcohol in that, like isopropyl alcohol used for chemical processing, excuse me. Um, so, yeah, there's a few. There's a few for you, Trond. Fantastic. So did you have a specific interest in the beverage space? I mean, uh, you know, we were joking about, uh, you know, liking beer earlier, but the aromatics space and, and the whole idea of, uh, you know, advanced sensing and, and being able to capture a, and or protect kind of these aromatics that are so important to us as, as human beings. I mean, it's sort of the small things that count, right, in, in, in life. So, you know, having a, a beverage that tastes, uh, you know, has a unique taste or, or that you just love, I mean, you can get very excited about that. I, I know I have my, my own favorite drinks. Okay. H- how did you get into this? Uh, well, in my own time, I'm interested kind of in, so I, I've been, um, fermenting some mead and I had been doing that before Sandy Mount, you know, honey wine, basically mm-hmm. fermenting that at home. 
And uh, kind of like you said, I wanted to make something that would be unique that maybe everybody wouldn't have at a house party. <laughs> so, you know, people might be home brewing beer. So I thought, well, I'll do mead. I think I did one with maple syrup once again to just push the envelope out a bit more. Um, so I've kind of had that interest in, you know, messing around and I would have done projects like that with my dad, not with mead or alcohol, but, you know, other engineering projects when I was a kid. Um, so that was maybe a subliminal kind of direction. Uh, or sorry, motivator, I guess. Well, I, front, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's where I wanted to go because, you know, you are a bit of a serial entrepreneur or serial tinkerer, aren't you? you, you you're interested in, in, in more what might happen if you do this and, and, and that and tinker here. And, you know, t tell me about how, how, I mean, do you were like that? You said growing up, you were inspired from, from even from your dad to, to do these kinds of experiments. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I was a crazy scientist um, and I was, you know, doing projects all day, every day. You know, like I used to do a good bit of sports and music and stuff as well. But, you know, building kites or flying little airplanes and, you know, stuff like that, building little things in the garden. Um, so I wouldn't say... Um, I wouldn't say I, I have a lot of curiosity. I put it that way, Trant. I wouldn't say necessarily I have, you know, really deep technical talent like some of the people I've met at MIT that are just insanely good at coding or at, you know, doing Arduino circuits. But um, I have the curiosity to try things out, I guess. Well, tell me, you, uh, you did something recently that related to, to COVID, another um, ma massive event that is unfolding right now. You started, um, well, how did this start? Why don't you unfold it for me? Because I, I know what I was doing in January, February, and I was, you know, I started writing about it. You, you decided to build a business. Yeah. Um, so the background, I suppose, is that we were getting into the COVID period around early to mid-March and at Sandy Mount, which... Um, you know, as I mentioned, the membrane technology business, we, we mostly serve large brewers, by the way, with that business. But because of COVID, pretty much all our projects were put on pause. Um, so I was in a situation where like money was not going to flow in from revenue from those projects. Plus, uh, and I don't know if this is a greater or a lesser fear than running out of money, but having people bored on your team is very undesirable <laughs> when you're running a company. And so when projects dry up, you kind of worry about, well, you know, what am I going to have these people do? Um, and uh, I was just reading a newspaper and I saw about how some distilleries in Europe, because, you know, Europe had gotten ahead of COVID um, before the US, I guess. So they were turning distilleries into making hand sanitizer and uh, kind of said to myself, well, we might have a few industry connections here maybe there's a way to just make some hand sanitizer and actually try and, um, I don't know if where you shop, where do you shop? I shop at Trader Joe's sometimes. Um, but, um, I was down at Trader Joe's, um, and I saw there was like no hand sanitizer on the shelves. <laughs> and I saw that in a few other places and I was calling around to like Walgreens and Walmart and basically nowhere had got hand sanitizer on the shelves at all. Um, and that was the point where I kind of put out a blast on social media and said to people, you know, hey, folks, anyone want to help me try and uh, make some hand sanitizer? Right. And and that went pretty well. You, you basically put a business up uh, in, within two weeks. How, how is that possible? Well, I mean, what does that take? 
Um, I think it takes very good connections and I was lucky that people volunteered. Um, so we, we got a kind of core team. There was Dana Hamilton, Adam Weiner, who were at Sandy Mount, um, also Anton Hunt and um, Gina Zach, and then two cousins of mine, John and Barry McGovern. But between all of us, we kind of managed to patchwork together what we needed. So Anton found a distributor that fronted us some money that you know allowed us to buy all the raw materials and ingredients. Uh, Gina's found, Gina found us a place where we could do the bottling. I actually don't even remember where we got the bottles from. Oh, I think that was via the bottler themselves. And then uh, Barry, my cousin, by calling around, we found some sources for ethanol. But uh, it was a crazy market. And, you know, pretty much every day there'd be deals that would be dropping. You'd say, oh, I'll put in an order for that ethanol. And then you call back again in an hour and then it'd all be gone. Um, so wow. it was, was kind of chaos. And people are only doing business based on cash. So you can't get any credit in this kind of environment. So everything has to be paid up front by wire. So there was but just this money was being wired before- everywhere. This was way before the recipe started appearing really on online. I think even WebMD has a recipe right now. And, uh, you know, from what I understand and also from what you're telling me, right, it's a mix of water, ethanol, glycerin, hydrogen peroxide, and in some measure. Yeah. But then you also needed the boxes, the labels, the, the bottles, the manufacturing site, uh, the bottling site, and then you needed the buyers. This is not super easy. You're making it sound extremely easy. No, it's a nightmare because as you, you need all of those things. And there were many points where we had everything except for one thing and then something else would fall apart. So there was one point where we literally had the alcohol, the bottles, the producer, and we didn't have somebody to buy it in front of the money. Um, then we got somebody to buy it and we didn't have a license to receive the alcohol. Then at some other point, you know, we had everything, but the supply of the alcohol dropped. So. It was very fragile. <laughs> Not how it's, I'd recommend uh, running a business. I believe you're describing <laughs> a startup though, right? I mean, this is the, in essence, you had this very concentrated startup experience. But in the end, you, you ended up selling a million and a half uh, bottles of hand sanitizer. Who does that? Well, I guess uh, somebody smaller than Purell, but bigger than maybe a local distillery. So we were kind of filling that gap between, you know, the largest companies that had very big lead times to do things. But yeah, we were kind of big enough to provide more supply than just, you know, a local distillery could do. So I but guess what, how did, when did you discover that this was a pop-up business and it wasn't going to last? Because I understand you're now trying to sell off the assets you told me. Why, why is that? And how quickly did that implode? And, and, and how did that even happen? Because it's a scary prospect. You put together all of these things. And had you not been able to sell all those bottles, I mean, all that investment, where would it have gone? Um, well, we ended up pre-selling all the bottles. So we got paid in advance by the person buying them. So we already had clarity on where they would go. So right now, you know, we only have random things like a few totes or there's maybe some excess, you know, certain chemicals, which I think we sold off. But, you know, the day I started at Trond was the day I knew it would shut down pretty quickly. I just never thought it would last for two and a half months. And I think, you know, Anton, you know, who was kind of my co-lead on it, he would have he would have said the same. We were thinking, you know, we might be lucky and get two weeks out of this. <laughs> and what were the motivations Apart from keeping your great staff busy, uh, you, did you want to help? Was it uh, 
purely thinking, wow, this could be a really some really fast money here. What are some of the things going into it? I guess I'm just curious. I mean, you you started a company in, in a month and have wound it up in, in, in two months. What what are you left with, I guess, is what I'm saying. So when you think back on this experience, I mean, one, was it worth it? Two, did you achieve what you set out to do? Yeah, so I think what I wanted to do was pretty simple. I wanted to try and cover payroll for people that were at my business and I yeah. wanted to keep them busy. Um, so, I mean, that's quite a lot of motivation. I don't think I needed anything more than that. Um, I think... Probably one of the most interesting things about the sanitizer experience was it was very interesting to learn about kind of doing a non-profit company versus doing a for-profit versus doing something in between. And what we ended up with Shop Respond was something that was in between. So it's actually an LLC. So it's a for-profit company, but we made a decision very early on that we would, um, you know, donate the remaining profits we had um, at the end of the period. So we always planned it was going to shut down. Um, you know, it turns out that setting up a nonprofit is actually not straightforward. It's expensive. It takes a lot of time. So it wouldn't have been practical to set up a nonprofit. Um, and it would have been complicated. And it, it's interesting as well, Trond, um, when you're trying to recruit, I'll use the word recruit, even though it's clearly a pretty special limited time experience. When you're trying to build or recruit a team like that, it's interesting how that kind of slight nonprofit angle you know motivates people um and it just kind of shows you the different ways in which people are motivated to get involved in different things and um, would you say that you have learned something fundamental by this experience that you can use in back at sediment or back at uh 0.5 brewing um, or in an ulterior experience. I mean, what is what are you left with after this experience? You know, apart from having been able to pay your employees, which is great. Um, what am I left with? Would well, you say that this actually is um, making you make different types of strategic decisions in your other business? Um. It's hard for me to pinpoint something, but I will say I would consider what we did to have been successful in that, you know, we got it going, we made money, we made quite a bit of money we can donate to charity. And I think just that success in itself is um, very valuable to everybody that was involved on the team um, because it gives them and me included, you know, credibility going forward in our careers. And that's probably worth a lot more than, you know, any money that was, you know, that we could have made. So that'd be my biggest takeaway from it. I think particularly, you know, just for me personally, I think when big business slows down like Sandy Mount, that's pretty tough on morale. And having some small success like this with the hand sanitizer, I think was very big for me personally. And then for people who were involved as well, you know, Dana, Adam, Anton, Gina, John and Barry. So, so Ronan, what are your thoughts about uh, COVID and business and post-COVID. I mean, we're not even post-COVID, but uh, it's kind of a silly phrase actually right now. It's almost arrogant, I think, in the US to talk about post-COVID. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, because it's ongoing, right? But maybe in Europe, they can say post-COVID. Well, you know, what, what, what's going to be the fallout in, you know, in the things that you care about now? So, you know, beverage business, what's, what's going to happen to, you know, what kind of impact is COVID having on the beverage business? Um. <clears throat> So the, the impact is clear that it's driving demand towards the home and it's driving demand towards e-commerce, 
which for non-alcoholic beer, since it's not regulated like alcoholic beer, I think is a big, you know, advantage because it's going to help drive sales in that category. Um, so I think that, you know, on premise is going to suffer. I'm kind of just stating the obvious, but it's in the short term going to result in, you know, a tough environment for bars and for restaurants and for, for selling down that channel. Now, granted in the beer industry, the vast majority of volume is actually going to homes. And so while, you know, brewers have lost some money on going to bars, I think in some cases they've made up a portion, if not all, depending on the category of that volume. Um, so I wouldn't say like beverage or beer in particular has been very hardly hit, uh, very badly hit, maybe co- compared to some other industries, like say just pure restaurants. Right. If you're looking to the future, I mean, uh, with the COVID lens or any other lens, we, you know, we were talking about this uh, a little kind of flatly in the beginning, or I was just bringing in this like functional plus and this whole idea about flavor. Versus the more serious, uh, I guess, health concern and lifestyle choice, lifestyle choice of going uh, low sugar or no sugar. Are, are these the trends that are going to be lasting? If you look, you know, stretch this out a decade, what, what, do, you, what do you see happening with beverages? Is it going to kind of, ha- are we going to have this steady march towards a, a very significant market share, you think, of uh, non-alcoholic drinks overall is it i mean what what percentage does it deserve in a balanced society if that's what we're moving towards you know where people start thinking about their health what 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 is the balance i mean is the balance no beer uh no alcoholic beer or is or what what is the what do you foresee happen um so i i don't i don't know what's going to happen i think some of the things that probably won't happen will be I don't think that beer is going to go away. And I think if anything, um, you know, the core brands of like lager and ale, like the simple brands, not even crafty. I think those are products that have been around for centuries. Um, certainly ale has laggers a bit more recent, but still like, you know, over a hundred years. So I think they have stood the test of time and I would guess are going to continue to stand the test of time, you know, as well, you know, wine and spirits. Um, you know, at the margin, it's just really hard to tell exactly what's going to happen with product splits and what the trends are going to be. I can't predict those, but I'd be very surprised if the major categories like, you know, beer, wine, spirits go away. Transportation is an issue, uh, that you have been engaged with, with Sandy Mount, right? Uh, it's expensive to, to try and, you know, supply chains have been questioned quite a bit under, under COVID. Do you, and if you could bring in another thing here, kind of distributed production, which is partly what, what you are enabling. Is there a world here where home brewing actually can become a real business? And I don't exactly know where I'm going with this, but you know, if you think about how one foresees that 3D printing becomes really uh, important potentially because you can print things and you can kind of create uh, you know, a lot of not just flavors, you can use all kinds of materials to, to create your own products. Uh, how does that work out in the food and beverage space? Well, as you mentioned, transport is an issue because beverages, especially, you know, beer contain a lot of water. Uh, in fact, 95% for beer. And that makes them very heavy and expensive and have a big carbon footprint for bringing them to homes. 
And if you look at the e-commerce business in particular, um, like right now, so we sell 0.5 on online and we sell a 12 pack. I think we sell it for 17.99 and then we charge 5.99 shipping. So what's that? 18 plus six, $24 for a, for a six, for a 12 pack, right? And we're charging six dollars for shipping. Actually, shipping is like fourteen dollars for us. So we're just eating that cost within our price of the beer. Um, and it depends where it goes. It could be higher, but it just shows you like such a large portion of the shipping cost for us doing e-commerce is is like it's such a large portion of the total price that people are paying. Um, and so it's a big opportunity if there are ways to reduce that water that's being transported. And and how do you do that? Well, concentrates do provide one avenue. Now the thing is, how do you get you know consumers to enjoy an experience with with concentrates, and what does that look like? And I think um, you know we have a solution that's that's launching soon for bars that will allow bars to serve draft beer from a concentrated keg. Um, and you know I would like to see us move towards a solution for homes that involves concentrates, so we can get down that shipping cost. I think we might be able to do it, you know, within the next year for 0.5. But, you know, I wouldn't say that's all a solved problem, Trond. I think the experience is crucial for people at home. They need to have a good experience as well as a low-carbon low footprint experience. Have you uh, followed a Bevy's move? You know, the smart water cooler guys is a former student of mine. How, you know, what do you think of their approach? The uh, flavor drink dispenser, they are mostly in the office space right now, but I believe that they had prototypes for for consumers as well i mean that's that is concentrates you know they're basically building up a, a dispenser is is that kind of what you is that model possible in in the home and and you know yeah so there were many that were critical to to that concept i mean i talked to industry professionals who were saying hey this is ridiculous we have tried this before it'll never work yet you know they are around they have raised money they're um, you know, a year and a half ago, they landed $35 million from Bessemer. I mean, you know, they're, they're investing, they're, you know, they're innovating in the field. Yeah. So I know Sean, you know, a little from MIT and he's always been helpful to me with, you know, questions and help. And I think that they definitely have the right long-term vision with, you know, reducing the amount of water that's been shipped around and they're doing that big style in businesses, as you said, um, with respect to homes, I think the potential is there. It's not an easy problem to solve, Tron, because I think the price point for people to put an appliance in their homes, it can't be too high. So can you sell somebody an appliance for you know $200, $300 maybe? You're certainly not going to sell them a $1,000 appliance, at least not to many people. Um, so the price point becomes, becomes very important for getting into homes. And I think having something that's you know, technologically slick and gives a good experience while being at the right, right price point. That's kind of the key to, to unlocking that. And, you know, I, I think Sean is well positioned for, for tackling that. And, you know, hopefully Sandy Man can make a contribution on the, on the beer and non-alcoholic beer side. So are you kind of splitting your time now between Sandy Mount and, uh, you know, and, uh, well, your, your two startups essentially? Well, Right now, the hand sanitizer business, um, you know, we saw the end coming of that about three weeks ago. And so we are currently in the phase of just distributing the funds out to charities right now. So there's not that much for work for me on that, Rand. Um, I forgot, but, Chris. But between Sandimond and, and 0.5, 0.5, they're sort of the same. 0.5, yeah. they're sort of the same, same, same thing now. Yeah. So right now, 0.5 is under the umbrella of Sandy Mount. Um, 
it, we may we may spin that out in the near future, but it's under the Sandy Mount umbrella, and I do split my time between those. If you think about it that way, and and who are the current clients? Uh, if you were to describe them of Point Five Brewing of of this idea of non alcoholic beer, you, you're selling to the to individuals, are you, or you're selling to yeah. bars? What are you? Yeah, we're just selling online, Tron. So it's you know individuals like you and me just ordering online and getting it delivered to their homes. We don't sell in bars at the moment. I think we may explore, you know, going out to, to large chains, but, um, you know, I would have said even before, even before COVID, which has made it even harder to hit traditional beer distribution lines, it's very challenging to get through traditional beer distribution with a product. There's a lot of layers. Um, and so going e-commerce gives a lot of business freedom just to build that relationship with consumers and, you know, directly deliver. Yeah, I mean the direct relationship with the consumer—it's the holy grail these days, right? There, there's a whole business of uh, of customer experience, and you know a lot of marketing hype going into this idea that you are building these, you know, forever relationships with consumers. I mean, is that your experience that your product becomes so important to these people? I mean, I guess they are innovators. You, you know, they're, they're buying a product that's unusual. They are first adopters, first movers. Do you feel like you have the kind of loyalty from these uh, uh, customers that you can think of them in a, in a long term? Is, is that what happens with this kind of product or, or is it not, not as easy as that? Uh, I think it's too early for me to say what's possible and what works because this is a new business line for me and I'm just learning about the e-commerce world. What I can say is that the business model doesn't work without loyalty. If you look at, you know, the revenue you make from selling, you know, a 12 pack of 0.5, where we end up doing well is where we get loyal consumers that are ordering regularly. If we just have people buying a one off, then, you know, you just don't get a good return. So I don't know, maybe that's a good thing for the market because it incentivizes companies to do something that's good for loyalty. Um, yeah. Well, fascinating stuff. Um, I think this uh, is, a, is a great discussion, uh, Ronan. Uh, this has been uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, of course, Trond. It was a pleasure. You have just listened to episode two of the Futurized podcast with host Trunane Unheim. The topic was the future of beverages. Our guest was Ronan McGovern. MIT alum with a PhD in mechanical engineering and currently the CEO at Sandy Mount Technologies and Point Five Brewing, an MIT spin-out he founded that serves brewers. My takeaway is that serial entrepreneurship takes trust, track record, and networks. I also have a newfound respect for the innovations happening in the beverage space, notably the uptick of non-alcoholic beer in Europe and now in the US, soon becoming a percentage of the market to reckon with. Turns out, a bit of tinkering as a kid can get an Irish kid from Dublin to MIT. That's also encouraging. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.